0: Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Willingong Baptist Church. Uh, If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you uh, over supper. Um, Here at Willingong Baptist Church, if you're new or visiting, we uh, love the Bible and we love going through books of the Bible, which is why for the next 10 weeks we're going to be studying this (laughs) blood-dripped book of Judges. Um, And it's a book in the Old Testament. If you don't know what is the Old and New Testament, basically the New Testament focuses on Jesus and what it looks like to follow Him. And the Old Testament focuses on the days before Jesus, but in many ways, it points us to Him. Uh, if you're someone who needs to understand history and where is the book of Judges placed uh, chronologically, uh, the setting of Judges is about 3,500 years ago. So the stories that we're going to be looking at for the next 10 weeks happened a long time ago. Yet nevertheless, it's are just important to us now. Another thing that's important for you to understand about the book of Judges is its genre. It's a historical narrative, primarily. Okay, so it's not like the epistles. It's not like the book of James, which uh, we're not studying, uh, which was uh, quite direct. It told you how to live, those commands. It was pretty simple to know how do you apply this passage. It's also not like the Gospels, where there's a, a running commentary on Jesus' teaching. Instead, it's historical narrative. The author is going to teach us, and or tell us about these stories, story, sorry, and he's not necessarily going to comment on what is right and what is wrong. Instead, he's going to leave it up to us to try and discern what God approves and doesn't approve of. Now, as you can tell, obviously, by the stage design, by the graphic, uh, the book of Judges is quite a dark book. It's quite a violent book. It's an R-rated book of the Bible, if you want to call it that. It's got chaos, murder, deception, mass murder, uh, rape, uh, dismemberment, civil war. This is a, a bloody book. It's not the sort of book that you read to your two year old before you put them to bed. And yet, nevertheless, this is such an important book because it unpacks for us how God's people need rescuing and how Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. I think you're going to find this book interesting, even if you're not a follower of Jesus. But I also think as we go through this book, you're probably going to ask the question why is this in the Bible? Like isn't the Bible meant to be a book of you know nice tales and morals and you know trying to uh, teach us how to live? Like it doesn't seem like this book would fit. But what we're obviously going to see is actually what it points out so clearly and so bluntly, is that everyone is broken, including ourselves, and in need of rescuing, in need of a king. For that reason, because of the intensity of this book, uh, and because it's a difficult one to preach, I'm going to pray. I'd love you to pray with me so that God may speak to us and challenge us tonight. And so prayers is a time where we talk to God, so if you'd like to pray with me, please do and say amen at the end, which means I agree. Father God, we want to thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that even when we engage with stories that are historically three and a half thousand years old, that they apply to us right here, right now. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, that tonight you may challenge us, that you may convict us, Lord, that you may rebuke us, Lord, that you may help us to believe in you and trust you, that you help us to let go of the idols in our lives and to cling to Jesus, our ultimate King. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, my favorite superhero is Batman, okay, he is by far the best superhero, and let me tell you a few reasons as to why I believe this. Uh, number one, because his movies, uh, most, the most recent ones in particular, the Christopher Nolan trilogies, are what, like, some of the best movies you'll see, you know, they're, they're dark, they're realistic, they're a bit crazy, you know, they're a bit like the Book of Judges, like they're, they're just really entertaining movies. Number two reason, though, is because by far, Batman is the coolest superhero to dress up as, Okay. Like, no one wants to dress up as Superman and look like a two-year-old that hasn't mastered the art of dressing yet. No one wants to be Superman. And number three, the reason why I really like Batman, is my favorite superhero, is because I potentially could become Batman. <laughs> Let me explain to you what I mean, right? There is 0% chance that I can become super- Superman, right? The same for you too, 0% chance I can become Spider-Man. But you know, the odds of me becoming Batman are slightly higher, okay? Let me give you an example. So, my, uh, my father is adopted, so I don't know who my biological grandparents, uncle, aunties, cousins are. So, I never know, right? Like, tomorrow, Bill Gates could call me up and say, Joel, I'm your uncle. He's $5 billion, and Gotham needs you, you know? That could happen, theoretically. That cannot happen, though, when it comes to Superman or any of the other superheroes. Now, as we come to the book of Judges, and as we come across some really interesting characters, we're going to be tempted to want to put ourselves in the shoes of the judges. We're going to be tempted to go, "Oh, I want to be like Gideon, I want to be like Samson, I want to be like these superheroes, these mighty people." And I want to warn you that we shouldn't do that. Because the reality is is that these judges, as we will see, are broken and corrupt, and as the cycle goes on, they get worse as the book of judges goes on. Instead, what I want to encourage all of us to do is to not put ourselves in the shoes of the strong characters in this narrative. But instead, put ourselves in the shoes of the weak, sinful, wicked Israelites who are crying out for God's help. It's really important that we do that as we go to read this book. And it's also really important as we come to read this book, like I said, that's you know, set three and a half thousand years ago, that we don't uh, commit the mistake that C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we look at these generations thousands of years ago and we go, Ha, ah, our society's not like this. Our society isn't full of spiritual pluralism, idolatry, immorality, violence, and rebellion. Because it is. Our error can be explained in similar ways to the book of Judges. And so it's important that we approach this book on right terms. And as we come to approach it tonight in particular, I want us to learn lessons from the Israelites. I don't want to look at them and laugh and be like, man, you guys are dumb. No, instead I want us to look at them and go, we can learn from them. We can learn from their mistakes. And so specifically tonight, I've got three lessons for us as we look at Judges 1 and 2 for us to learn. Three lessons that we're going to learn and apply to our lives. And to give you a preview, in chapter 1, we're going to learn one lesson. So I'm going to go through chapter 1, explain it to us, and then talk about one lesson. And then I'm going to go through chapter 2, and then I'm going to talk about two lessons. And so look, I've got a lot of ground to cover, and so let's dig into it. If you've got your Bible, keep it open at verse 1. It should also come up on the screen. And let me read out and explain chapter 1 to us. So, verse 1, after the death of Joshua, let's stop there, it's going to take a while, but let me explain to you, because some of you are like, who's Joshua? That's a great question. You see, Joshua was a godly man and a godly leader who came after Moses. He was a military leader in particular, he helped God's people enter into the promised land and to uh, get a lot of victories, and he won a lot of battles. He was a, a great military leader, but on top of that, he was also a spiritual leader, he was a godly man. Matter of fact, I still can't find anything the Bible says bad about Joshua. He was an incredibly godly man who had faith in God and God's strength and ability to be with God's people. He was a spiritual leader because if you turn to, in your Bible, the page before the book of Judges, it's the book of Joshua, and in chapter 24, we see there that Joshua is leading God's people to renewing a covenant with God and saying, will you serve God and Him alone as you enter this promised land? It's important you understand who Joshua is because as we go through the book of Judges and as we meet these interesting characters, Joshua is going to be the yardstick. He's going to be the benchmark that we should be comparing these judges to and going, are they like Joshua or are they worse? And so that's Joshua, i going to keep that in mind. Let's keep on reading, let me go back to it. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up and fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up, I have, given him, I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. And so the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. Now, I didn't have time to read out all of chapter 1. It'll take a while, and I I didn't want to do that to Chris. There's some hard names there for him to say. Um, But chapter 1 basically is almost like a Twitter update of how the conquest is going. You see, Joshua led God's people into the Promised Land, but they weren't able to drive out all the Canaanites. There was still work to be done. And so chapter 1 is an overview as to how did the Israelites go once Joshua had passed away. And so what we're seeing here is Twitter updates, basically, from the different leaders or from the different clans or the different tribes within Israel. Because you see, Israel is made up of 12 different clans, if you want to call that. And so we're seeing Twitter updates as to how Judah's going, or Facebook updates as to how Gad is going in the different tribes. And it's important for you understand that there was work to be done, that God actually wanted the Israelites to drive all the Canaanites out from the land. Let me read to you a verse from Exodus. It should come up on the screen. Uh, verse twenty, chapter twenty-three, verse thirty-three. God says this: Do not let, do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Now, as we go through this uh, chapter one, what you see actually is in verses three to twenty-one. It gives us a, a summary of how the southern tribes are going. While in verses uh, tw- uh, twenty-two to thirty-two, it gives us an overview as to how the northern tribes are going. And as we read it, what we see is that they're not fully successful, that they don't fully conquer the land. And as we read it, we're drawn into showing sympathy towards the Israelites and thinking, oh, you know, they did their best. You know, the Canaanites, like, they're pretty stubborn, you know, they didn't want to leave. And, you know, some of these Canaanites, they have chariots filled with iron, man, that's like tanks, you know, like, that makes sense, like, who wants to fight against a tank, or oh, 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 on top of that, you can think, oh, it makes sense that, you know, the weaker Canaanites, that they, you know, there's, there's you know, there's a financial investment there, making them slaves so they can utilize them. Like, they've, they've done their best. Surely, you know, God would be happy with what they've done. And in a second, we'll see how God responds. But before we do, I think we need to stop for a second, and we need to talk about the elephant in the room, uh, which is this idea of conquest. This idea of why, why would God send people to go drive out other people from their land. This seems like an unjust religious crusade. And that's a great question. It's probably the biggest question you've got when you look at the book of Judges. And so what I want to do is I want to read out to you verses five to seven again, because I think here is the answer. So it should come up on the screen. It says this. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled but they chased him and caught caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. You know, it's interesting, as we have this big question, like this is unjust, this is so unfair. How does the Canaanites respond to God's judgment? They go, God's paying me back for what I've done. You know, I I, I think you've got to really pick up on this, that the author of the book of Judges didn't put this at the start of the book, you know, like randomly. It did this on purpose for us to see that what is coming is just, and that God is a good God, and that we can trust Him and His judgment. You see, in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, I don't have time to unpack it all to us, but what it tells us is that God wanted the Canaanites to be driven out from their land because they were wicked people rebellious sinful people and God wasn't using the Israelites to do this because they were perfect how far from perfect but God was doing this because of the fact that the Canaanites were wicked and they needed to be judged and maybe some of you are thinking well this just sounds crazy like this sounds dangerous how could like if someone was to say this today that they're on a religious crusade for God isn't that isn't that wrong well yes it is see, on this side of the New Testament, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus' teaching who tells us to love our enemies, we're not to go do religious crusades. And so I want to make this clear to you, if that you come across someone who is trying to motivate you to go be violent for the sake of Christ's glory, that person is either a liar and they're manipulating you or they're mentally ill and it's not what God wants from us now. You see, God wanted the Canaanites in particular to go because the Israelites were entering that land. And the Canaanites were going to be a spiritual canter to the Israelites. You see, the Canaanites, if they remained, what it would look like is that the Israel would intermarry with the Canaanites, they would worship the gods of the Canaanites, they would copy their wicked actions such as child sacrifices, sorcery, witchcraft, and temple prostitution. God didn't want this. But unfortunately, the Israelites didn't drive them all out. And so instead, what we see in chapter 1 is that there are landmines that the Israelites are leaving in the land to explore later on. Let's see God's assessment in chapter 2. What does God think about this? Let me read out to you verses 1 to 3. "'The angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal, to Bochim, and said, "'I brought you out of Egypt, and I led you into land I swore to give to your ancestors. "'I said, I'll never break my covenant with you, "'and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land.' But you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? I've also said I'll not drive them out before you. They'll become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. What's God's assessment? I feel like God's saying, hey, remember, remember how I saved you out of Egypt? You know, remember how I parted the Red Sea? Remember the ten plagues and my my strength and and miraculous power I've demonstrated to you? Remember how I've been faithful to you, even though you haven't been faithful to me? Remember how I've forgiven you? Remember how I've provided for you, like manna in the desert and water out of a rock? Like, remember how good I've been to you? How gracious I've been? Remember how I gave you this one, like, command and I explained to you why you've disobeyed me? Why have you done this? first, I think we might be like, this is pretty harsh. Like, come on, God, they they did their best. But when you realize, actually, that their obedience was half-hearted, that their faith was lukewarm, when you realize that that's God's assessment, and then when you reread chapter one, it's hard not to miss it. Like, like, literally, it's hard not to miss it. In verse two of chapter one, what was the first command that God said? You know, they called out and said, who should go fight against the Canaanites? And what does God say? He says, Judah should go. What does Judah do? He goes, Uh, I don't know if I fully trust God. Hey, Simon, you want to help me out? We'll go together. Throughout the rest of the chapter, what do you see? They come across the tanks, so to speak, the chariots of iron. They've come across worse in the past. The Egyptians were coming at them with chariots of iron. That was a time for them to go, God is strong. I'll put my faith in Him and I'll trust in Him. But instead, they flee. Or what about the weaker Canaanites? That was a time for them to go, no, God told us to drive them out. I'll trust in Him to provide for us and let's remove Him. They had half-hearted obedience. They trusted in themselves rather than in their God. And that leads me to the first lesson for us to learn from the Israelites. The lesson is this, come up on the screen, that unbelief leads to disobedience. That unbelief leads to disobedience. Martin Luther, a famous theologian, said that every sin springs from a wicked heart of unbelief. Unbelief in God's character, and God's strength, and God's power, and His promises. Unbelief will lead to disobedience. You see, what was going on here is that Israel was saying to God, God, we, we can't drive out the Canaanites. They're too strong. They're too numerous. And God's response is, it's not that you can't, but it's that you won't. You see, metaphorically, as, as we approach chapter 1, I want you to view your own lives as the unconquered land of Canaan. I want you to picture in your own hearts that there are Canaanites there that you you need to fight and that you need to drive out from your hearts, and that God wants you to obey Him. That there's sins in our life, believe it or not, right now, where we say to God, you know what, I can't do that. And God actually says, no, it's that you won't. Maybe right now you're going toe-to-toe with some big Canaanite in your life, some big sin, some big addiction that you just feel like I cannot defeat this. And God says, it's not that you can't, it's just you won't. It could be that you're in a relationship that you know God doesn't want you to be in. It could be that there's some sexual sin that, you are, that you're flirting with or addicted to. It could be pornography or a whole lot of things. And you're here and you're going, I can't defeat this. I can't change this. And God's saying, it's not a matter of you can or can't. It's not matter if you won't. Maybe you've got some big Canaanites that you know you're going to toe-to-toe with. Or maybe you've got some small ones you know, maybe you've got some, you know, small Canaanites in your heart that you believe you're in control of, you're the master of, they're enslaved to you. Some more, maybe, respectable sins. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's pride in your heart, which like I know I got it, but it doesn't really matter. But it stops you from being raw and vulnerable and actually confessing sins to your brothers and sisters who are here to help you and love you and support you. And you go, I don't want to do that. I want to protect myself. I don't want them to know what I'm like. It's, it's better if I don't Be vulnerable with them, not realizing that actually by doing that, you're hurting yourself. Maybe it's not pride. Maybe it could be the fact that you're addicted to work, and then you're overworking. And then that you just can't say no to responsibilities at your work, and so as a result of that, you're incredibly busy, and so what it means is you can't come to church because you're tired, you can't commit to a home group because you're tired and you're stressed and you're anxious, you can't commit to serving or meeting up with God's people because you're just like, I'm just overworked. And, you, and your excuse of that is, I can't, I can't do this, I can't. And actually God's saying, no, it's not a matter of you can or can't, it's a matter that you won't. It's a matter of you choosing that decision. You won't trust in God that He can help you, that you actually need to become before Him in prayer and ask for His strength to be able to do the responsibilities that you have. You're not replying upon God, but your own strength. Where are you saying, I can't, but God is actually saying, you won't? Where are areas in your life of unbelief that is leading towards disobedience? Let me give you a few examples over the years where I've said to God, I can't, and He said, no, you you won't. Um... Over the years, and even still now, I say to God, no, I can't go talk to my neighbors about Jesus. I, I can't do it. I don't, have, I don't have the ability. And God says, you won't. Oh, I, can't, I can't confess that sin to my wife or, you know, what's going on my head to my home group or to my pastor or to my good friends who love me because i will think bad of me. It's just like, no, you won't. you can't. I can't give my money towards uh, the church or being generous towards other people or to sponsoring children or trying to use that money because I'm trying to save up to, to buy a bigger house or to, to have this car or to have this holiday and I, I, just, I just don't have the ability. And God says it's not a matter of whether you can or you can't. It's a matter that you won't. I don't know about you, but this happens all the time, even in me, my own heart this week. Where are we saying we can't? But God says no, it's just you won't. You won't put your faith in God's strength, in his plan, in his power, in his spirit, and in the power of prayer to help you. And look, can I point out a truth that I think we need to realize, in particular when it comes to faith, as we look at the book of Judges, and it's a simple one, but it's one you should feel the weight of, and it's this is that faith requires bravery. That faith requires bravery. And maybe, like, what do I mean by that? Well, true discipleship is radical and involves risk taking. It involves you relying upon God and His promises and His power. It doesn't involve relying upon your own power, your own strength, your own wisdom, your own instincts, your own plans, insurance policies. It takes bravery to trust in God and to believe in Him and to try and conquer these Canaanites in your hearts. It takes bravery to put your finances in God's hands. It takes bravery to put your life in God's hands, to put your relationships in God's hands, to put your future in God's hands. It's not easy. It takes bravery. It takes bravery for the climbs, to quit their jobs and to go overseas. It takes bravery to follow Christ, to live a countercultural life in our climate and to bring glory to God. And if you're like, Joel, I just don't know if I can do that. Once again, it's not a matter of whether you can or you can't. It's a matter of whether you will or you won't. And if you're like, I don't know if I have the strength, but why do you think God gives us the gift of prayer? Why do you think he gives us his spirit? Why do you think he wanted the Israelites to rely upon his strength? My prayer is is that we be sending our gospel warriors into our hearts where there's unbelief to try and defeat those Canaanites, be it big or small. Lesson number one, unbelief leads to disobedience. Unbelief leads to disobedience. Now, let's have a look at chapter two, and we're going to look at the cycle of judges, and then after we go through it, I'm going to point out two lessons for us. Um, One of the greatest things about being a dad, for those of you who are dads, you know this, is that you get to be a little kid all over again. Uh, And so, in particular, you get to do things that you love doing as a a little kid. And so, for me, I like reading Where's Wally? Reading, that is. Um, And I enjoy that because for some reason it's not socially acceptable for a 29-year-old to go read Where's Wally at Sifter's Cafe, weirdly. And so, in particular, I like reading it with my kids. But one thing that they don't like is they don't like it how I try and find everything. You know, like, they're just looking for Wally. And I'm like, no, 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 we've got to find Wally, we've got to find Wizard, we've got to find the dog, we've got to find the binoculars, we've got to find everything I can. And it just drives them nuts. But, you know, in many ways, Judges chapter 2 is like that key in, you know, where's Wally that says to you what to look out for. You see, in Judges chapter 2, we're going to learn about this uh, repeating cycle. And the author wants us to get our head around this cycle so that we'll look for it in the next 20 chapters to come. And so the cycle, which will come up on the screen in a second, is I've got four R's for alliteration. Alliteration is this, is a cycle of rebellion, retribution, repentance, and rescue. Rebellion, Retribution, Repentance, and Rescue. And so let's go through this passage, and let me point out these four things to us. And let's start by reading verses 10 to 12. It says this, After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up and neither knew the Lord, nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. Because they forsook him and served the Baal and the Astaroths. And his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of the enemies all around them, whom they were no longer able to resist. What we see here is that the Israelites had half hearted obedience. They had lukewarm faith. They only obeyed God partially. And what we're seeing here is what happens in the generation that follows. Because usually one mistake in one generation is magnified in the next. So one generation has half obedience, the next generation has full-out rebellion. That's a lesson for us to learn in itself. But what we see here in particular is you're probably thinking, is it really bad that these Israelites were worshipping other gods? Like, is, it really, is that really that bad? Well, let me tell you a little bit about these gods. The two that I mentioned, Baal and Asheroth. Now, these two Canaanite gods, Baal was the god of storm and fertility, and Asheroth was the god of fertility, love, and war. Baal was a, a male, Asheroth was a female, and they were companions And in Canaanite theology, the fertility of the land as well as families was dependent upon the sexual relationship of these two gods. And so the way that your land would become more fertile and God would send rain and oil and different things would be if you were to create sacrifices or do things to try and arouse these two gods, Baal and Asheroth, to have sex, which would produce fertility down on the earth. Now, if you're wondering, well, how do you, I guess, give a sacrifice to these gods? Well, the Canaanite men were encouraged to worship Baal at shrines by having sex with sacred prostitutes. Literally, it was what it was meant to do, it was meant to try and encourage the sex of Baal and Asheroth. And these gods were not pleased unless they were rightly worshipped by all people. Of course, this breaks apart relationships, marriages, as well as enslaves women to prostitution. But if that wasn't worse enough, if Baal wasn't still pleased, he was also satisfied by sacrificed children, most likely the children of the prostitutes who were raped as a sacrifice to Baal to please him. These are the sort of gods that the Canaanites are worshipping. These are the sort of actions that the Israelites were doing. Make no mistake, what the Israelites Israelites were doing was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They rebelled and God was angry. God was angry. And as verse 15 tells us, in here, or verse 14, sorry, says, "In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them, He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as He had sworn to them. You see what happens is they rebel. that's the first part of the cycle, but the second part of the cycle is that there's retribution. That God is angry. That God punishes them for their sin, for their wickedness. And if you're someone like, Joel, I don't like the fact that God is an angry God. Isn't He meant to be a God of love? Make this clear to you. That God's anger is not the opposite of His love, but instead it's an expression of His love. That God's jealousy is an expression of His love for His people. Like, let me give you an example, right? Let's, hypothetically, let's say that there is a husband and he goes home one day and he sees that his wife is cheating on him in his house. And what he, how he responds is he goes, Ah, You win some, you lose some. Goes, sits down on the couch, cracks opens a beer, turns the TV on. Would you go, man, that's husband of the year material right there? What a loving man. If you like, obviously he has absolutely no love for his wife. You see, God is jealous for his people, and so he should be. His anger, like I said, it's not opposite of his love, but it's an expression of it. And so God responds in retribution. That's the second part of the cycle. And how do God's people respond? Well, they cry out, they, they repent, they become distressed and grieved. And then the fourth part of the cycle is that, well, God shows mercy to them, that He rescues them, that He sends a judge to go help them in their distress. You see, our God is a gracious God who helps out rebellious, wicked people. He's such a gracious God as well that even the judges that we, who are to come, who are also rebellious people, He still uses them to save His people. But what happens after the judge dies? Well, look at verse 19 with me. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. What happens is the cycle repeats all over again. There is rebellion, retribution, repentance, rescue, repeat. And so what are the lessons that we can learn from this cycle and from this the Israelites here? Well, we've got two lessons for us. The first one is that idolatry leads to slavery. And the second lesson is that Jesus leads to freedom. Idolatry leads to slavery. Jesus leads to freedom. If you're wondering what is an idol, an idol is basically anything or anyone that you worship that is not the God of the Bible. It could be an outward thing, a physical idol, a physical statue that you bow down to, or it could be an invisible inward idol in your heart that no one else sees. That you make sacrifices to. In reality, is is that we, we make these sacrifices by, for example, you can sacrifice your children to the the I guess the god of success or, or work or relationships. We hold idols close to us. If you're wondering what your idols are, well, when someone doesn't bow down to them, or when someone tries to challenge you on them, you'll feel threatened by them. And here's the truth: idolatry leads to slavery. It leads to slavery. If there's a passage or a case study of it, this is it. The Israelites, they idolize and they bow down to the Canaanite gods. And what happens is almost immediately the Canaanites themselves enslave them to that religion and to those people. Don't miss the irony here. You see, the reality is, is that God created all of us to worship and ultimately to worship Him. But if you do not worship Him, your heart will be an idol factory and will worship many other things. Can I make this clear? If you're a follower of Christ here today, I don't think your main danger is atheism, but instead your main danger is pluralism. Your main danger is worshiping Jesus plus other idols in your life. And here's the thing. The idols of this age, which we all struggle with, wealth, comfort, sex, relationships, materialism, they lead to slavery, not freedom. Like, like let me give you a simple example. Let's say money, right? We all know that money can be an idol that we can all struggle with. You go after it, you make sacrifices for it, you sacrifice your family, your integrity, your health, your relationships, and do you feel satisfied? No, it demands more. On top of that, you play the comparison game, and you think, oh man, I don't have as much money as Pete Reeve, I don't have a house like Pete Reeve, and you, and you keep on playing that game over and over again. Sorry, Pete, for using as an example. You find it hard to be generous, and you can become hostile when... People ask for money because they're not bowing down to your idol. So I'm clear, this is not the life of a free person, but the life of a slave. Church, we need to hunt our idols. We need gospel warriors to come into our hearts, to permeate into those dark places, and to kill those idols that are preventing us from trusting and worshipping our glorious God. And so, look, there's many ways to do this. I've got two very simple questions to to begin that hunt to help you navigate where they may be. Two simple questions. first one is this is, where do you find joy in your life? Where do you find joy in your life? I guarantee if you look there, you may be able to come across some idols. Number two, what are the things in your life that you could not live without? What are the things in your life that you could not live without? If God was to take them away, what would shake you? What would shake you? Let's send out gospel warriors to hunt them down. Lesson number one, unbelief leads to disobedience. Lesson number two, idolatry leads to slavery. Lesson number three, the good news, that Jesus leads to freedom. For the last two months, I have been studying the book of Judges, reading books about the book of Judges. Uh, in particular, there's one book by Tim Keller called Judges for You. I highly recommend it. It's a great book. And I've got to say, as I've been reading the book of Judges, it's become one of my favorite books in the Bible. But I've got to be honest with you, it's quite a depressing book. Like, spoiler alert, it doesn't end on a happy ending, okay? Like, we don't get to the end, and it's like, oh, the Israelites and God, are all you know, there's peace, and everyone lives happily ever after. It doesn't end that way. It's a tragic tale, and it's a depressing book. And truth be told, if the book of Judges was not in the Bible, or was some other book that I could read at the library, I'd be like, man, it's disappointing. What a bad ending. But when this book is placed into the Bible where it belongs... It's an amazing book. For the Israelites, the point of this book was to point out to them so bluntly, so clearly, that you are broken and in need of rescue. But it was also to point out to them that your leaders are also broken and in need of rescue. It was also to help them wait for and be, have anticipation for the ultimate king and rescuer to come. And for us today, on this side of the cross, the other side, it's a beautiful book for us that reminds us that we are broken And that Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. Like, this is the difference between Jesus and other gods. If you look for Jesus and you find him, he will satisfy you. And get this, if you fail him, he'll forgive you. This is the great thing about Jesus, that no matter what the cost it is to follow him, that it is worth it, that there is joy in obedience. So if there's some little Canaanites in your life right now that you're like, Joel, that's a cost for me to kill that. Know that the cost is worth it. Know that there is joy in following Christ. And know this, no matter what cost you go to following Christ, that he went so much further. That what he carried on the cross for your sin and for your rebellion, for your idolatry and for your unbelief, that he did that so that you can be redeemed, so that you can be reconciled, so you can be in a relationship with a God who loves you. That he's a gracious God. It's so important that we understand that rescue is coming and Jesus is the rescuer. Look, my hope is, is for the next next 10 weeks, is that we learn from the Israelites, that these three lessons will be three of many. My hope is, is that we learn that unbelief leads towards disobedience, that idolatry leads towards slavery, but following Jesus leads towards freedom. My hope is is this is one of many lessons that we learn. And I want to make this clear to you. The reason why we're doing Judges before Christmas is so that when we get to Christmas, you're not just thinking, oh, jingle bells, here we go, presents. But instead, what is imprinted into your mind is that rescue is coming, that the ultimate judge is to come, that the ultimate king is Christ Jesus, and that we need him. And so, can I plead with your hearts tonight? If you're if you're not a follower of Jesus tonight, can I can I plead with you to, to let go of those idols that are enslaving you, and to cling to your Savior who saves you? And if you're a follower of Christ here tonight, can I can I encourage you to reflect upon your unbelief? In a moment, Peter's going to get up and he's going to start playing the piano. When I pray, and as he does that, he's going to spend some time just playing. And when, when that happens, I want you, if you're a follower of Jesus here tonight. I don't want you just to leave here going, oh, that's a cool sermon. I want you to leave here reflecting and, and thinking about what do you need to repent of? Where are the areas of unbelief? Where are there idols in your heart that you are bowing down to? I want you to reflect upon how, how much do you cherish Christ Jesus? Is he really your king and rescuer? And as, as we do this, can I point something out, uh, which I feel like i just got to constantly do to every single one of us all the time, And what I want to point out to you is this, is that every single one of us in this room, including myself, including Rod Bailey, including Pete Reeve, every single person here is broken. That all of us need a Savior. Don't be fooled by how we dress. Don't be fooled by the fact that someone is married and a relationship has nice, obedient kids. Don't be fooled by how someone has a nice car, a nice house. Every single one of us needs Christ Jesus. Every single one of us is broken and needs our Savior. And so when we spend time reflecting and thinking, reflect, reflect, think, and repent. If you need to, get your phone out and put a reminder of how you want to keep yourself accountable to this. But church, for the next 10 weeks, I don't want this just to be a fun series with some cool artwork. I want this to be a series that changes us by God's spirit so we would be more like Christ, we bring glory to Him, and we follow Him. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much that Christ Jesus is the perfect saviour. Lord, as we, as we go through this book, we're going to come across a lot of broken saviours and we're going to be tempted to think that we can be just like them. We're going to want to put ourselves in the shoes of the heroes instead of realising that actually we need to put ourselves in the shoes of those who are broken and in need of help. Father God, I, I just plead with you that by your spirit you may be convicting us of areas of unbelief in our hearts. Lord, we can doubt your character. We can doubt your goodness. We can doubt your strength. We can lack faith. Lord, help us not to have lukewarm faith. Help us not to have partial obedience, but help us to trust you, knowing that that takes bravery, but also knowing that you give us the power to do so by your spirit through the power of prayer. So Lord, help us to believe in you. Help us to obey you. Help us to trust you in this world which rebels against you and wants nothing to do with our King. Lord, please help us to see our heart as an unconquered land where there is still dark places, where sin is at work, where there are Canaanites, be it big or small, be it big, immersions sins that we just feel like we cannot defeat or small, respectable ones that we've grown used to. Father, help us to drive them out. Lord, give us a passion and a desire and a zeal to want to grow in holiness and become more like our Savior. And Lord, there are so many idols in our life that we are tempted to bow down to, that we are tempted to find our joy, our security, our significance, our worth. So many things that we think, if I just have that, then I'll have meaning, then I'll have joy, then I'll have significance. Lord, help us to demolish such idols. Help us to let go of them that lead to slavery and help us to cling to our Savior, Jesus. Help us to follow Him. And so, Lord, please be with us in the next 10 weeks. Help us to trust in You and to reflect and think, in particular for this next minute and a bit. And Lord, by Your Spirit, convict us as to what things we need to change. And then remind us that it's only by the power of Your Spirit and the motivation of the gospel that we will. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.